Well, good morning and welcome back to New City Church. Uh, I want to share a story with you of a little boy who one day decided he really wanted a bicycle, but he wasn't quite sure how to pray. And so he turned on the television and watched some Christian programming, hoping to take some notes and to figure out what he needed to say to God in order to get that bicycle. And so he watches this first program. It was very high church, traditional, using a lot of kind of high flute language. And so he's trying to take notes. And then he goes to his room and he prays this. He says, Almighty and eternal God, if it is in your vast and infinite plan that I get myself a bicycle, May it be according to your perfect will that I, might, that I might sing your excellencies day after day, every day that I ride it, world without end. Amen. And then he goes to sleep. He wakes up the next morning excited for this bike that's supposed to be outside. He goes outside. There's no bicycle. So he's discouraged and he's a little disappointed, thinking maybe I didn't pray right. And so he turns on the TV again, this time watches a different uh, program, thinking maybe if I say something else, it'll work. Uh, the, the program he came across this time was kind of more pro a prosperity gospel, kind of name it and claim it. God always wants you to be happy. So again, he takes notes, go to his bedroom and prays this. He says, Dear Jesus, I declare my need for a bicycle, <laughs> and I also declare that it be blue and be silver, and demand that it be here tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. because you want your children to prosper and be happy, and I need my bicycle to be happy. Thank you. Amen. Goes to sleep. It wakes up the next morning, goes outside, no bicycle. And so not only at this point is he disappointed and he's discouraged, but he's kind of angry. He's like, what am I supposed to do? And so he's walking into his house. His mom kind of sees that her son looks a little upset. She sees him walk into her bedroom. As, she, as he goes into her bedroom, he notices his mom has a statue of Mary. So he takes the statue of Mary, puts it under his arm, goes outside into the woods. Uh, he's gone for about 15 minutes. He comes back into the house. His mom realizes the statue of Mary is no longer with him. And so she sees him go into his room and he closes his door. She's concerned about what's going on. And so she puts her ear to the door and hears him pray this. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... <laughs> Now, I share that story because I think um, uh, today, as we're going to dive back into the book of Exodus that we kind of left off in November, uh, we're going to see how God cares for and provides for his people. And often it's different than what we think, right? Just like that little boy, we often think we have to go and do and say the right thing in order to get God to do for us what we want. And we're going to see that's actually quite different than how God operates, even even in the Old Testament, that we like to assume that there's a vengeful and angry God that's not at all what we see. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 18. Um, if not, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. It's been a while since we've been in Exodus. I'm not going to give you a 10-minute recap, but I'll just tell you really briefly where we are. Uh, we left Exodus in November. This is the story of the Israelites leaving captivity out of Egypt and God making them into a nation. Uh, they have, we've seen Moses being called and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. We've seen the Ten Commandments. Uh, we most recently saw uh, the Israelites going through the Red Sea. We see that God provided them water and manna. Um, and then they have their first kind of battle. The Amalekites attack them, partially because that they realize that the Israelites have water and deserty land. So that's pretty important. And they left Egypt. And so they attack them. Uh, but the Israelites survive. And now, finally, 
they're safe. In other words, they don't have any people coming after them. They don't have anyone chasing them. They now have the ability to start to transform and become the type of nation that God is calling them to be. And so Exodus chapter 18, this is where we see they've just finished, defeated the Amalekites who had attacked them. And now God is going to begin to shape them into his chosen people. And so Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. It says, Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people, Israel, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. So if you remember and were here, uh, Moses was, grew up in, 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 it was an Israelite, grew up in Egypt, uh, was a prince, kind of left Egypt after he murdered uh, an Egyptian uh, slave driver and uh, goes to this land of Midian, uh, ends up marrying a Midianite woman, and then he heads back to Egypt during all the 10 plagues and to kind of rescue God's people. Uh, And so at this point, uh, they are trapped. They are about to be in Mount Sinai, which is where they're going to spend the most of the rest of the book of Exodus, where Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, hears about them. Now, we don't know how he knows what's going on. The most likely assumption is that the various caravanners that would have been walking through that region, uh, Jethro would have been uh, curious, and so he would have asked them as they passed through the land of Midian. Uh, And so he goes there. Now, if you also remember uh, that Midian, kind of the the ends of kind of the region of the land of Midian is around Mount Sinai. Uh, In fact, Moses was here. In Exodus chapter 3, when he was shepherding uh, Jethro's flock, and he has the burning bush moment. And so this would have been an area that Jethro would have been familiar with. And so he finds out what's going on, and he goes and meets with Moses. Verse 2, it says, Now Jethro's Mo- uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Sipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. And the other, Elizer, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. And so at some point, the text doesn't tell us, but during all of the episodes and everything that was going on in Egypt, Moses sent his wife and his kids back to Midian to be with Jethro. Uh, And so now they are returning. Now, if you remember, this is also the place where Moses uh, reunited with Aaron uh, back towards the beginning of the book. And so this seems to be Mount Sinai also seems to be a family reunion of sorts for Moses. And so his family, his father-in-law comes back and here's what they do, verse 7. It says, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and what went into the tent. Moses re- and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sakes, all the hardships that had confronted them on the way, and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods, because he did the wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and offered sacrifices to God. And Aaron, who is Moses' brother, uh, came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. 
And so they meet here, and Jethro ends up rejoicing over the power of Yahweh, of what God did through the, Egyptian, or through the Israelites in Egypt to rescue them and to bring them out of slavery. And so his response is to offer a sacrifice and worship the Lord. Now, this is somewhat significant because uh, Jethro is a priest of pagan gods, again, in the Midianite, or the Midianite region. And after he hears what this God of Israel has done, uh, he decides that they need to offer, him, or offer sacrifices and worship him. Now, this is also a very stark contrast to what we see in in chapter 17, where the Amalekites hear what happened to the Israelites and go and attack him, and what happens with the Egyptians when they see all the power and the wonder of Yahweh, and instead of letting the people go, they kind of tighten their grasp even harder. In other words, what's happening here is that Jethro understands something that the Amalekites and the Egyptians failed to realize, and that is that the Lord is greater than all other gods. What the story of Exodus is trying to show us is this this Yahweh is different, that the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, is different than all of these other false gods that all of these other uh, people and pagan practices worshipped. And so this is one of the things that we're supposed to see as we read this text. Now, this is also a reminder for us, because although we live in a different uh, context and culture and place uh, than the ancient world, we can all have various gods in our life. Now, to be clear, uh, this is not to say that you and I can't have hobbies or things that we enjoy or even things that we spend our money on that bring us happiness. That is totally fine. But what can happen if we are not careful is that we begin to pursue these things and kind of give our meaning, uh, our desire and our identity to things that are lesser for us than who God is. And we can all fall into this trap. Uh, Even if you are a follower of Jesus and have been following Jesus for a long time, it is really easy for us to lose sight on the most important thing. Right? And so let me give you an example of this to kind of show you how all of us can be susceptible to, to realizing or to losing our focus on what the greater or what the better thing is. Now, this will involve a show of hands here in a minute, so just to get you ready. Um, but I was fortunate, uh, for those that are around my age and my generation, I'll make this point for you, um, that I grew up in the golden age of music. Okay, now to be fair, I will say this. It's really interesting if you read kind of like psychological studies about people's favorite music, everybody for various reasons, whatever you listen to when you are a teenager, you automatically assume is the best music. Like, so no matter how old you are, whatever you listen to and like as a teenager to you is the best music ever. But I, you can say, well, Dylan, this doesn't always also apply to you. Yes, but no, because I grew up at the dawn of the boy band. Okay, so I don't know, like, I don't know what you listen to, but like boy band, that was like the thing, right? And of course, when I was growing up, there was two uh, preeminent boy bands that kind of competed for the hearts of teenage girls and boys all across the country, right? The girls because they liked them and the boys because they wish they could be like them, okay? You had NSYNC and you had the Backstreet Boys, okay? So let me just ask this, right? Show of hands. Uh, if you were, if you have an opinion on this matter, if you were a Backstreet Boy fan more than NSYNC, okay? See it? My hand is raised. I'm not ashamed. Okay, a few of you understand, okay? If you were NSYNC, okay? So we have more NSYNC, and I know they had JT, and he's fine, all that sort of thing. But here's the deal. Collectively, the Backstreet Boys are better, right? They were just better, okay, you guys? And so I just want to show you, right? We got, how, thank you. See, you get it wrong, right? We can un- misunderstand what the greater thing is, not in sing, but the Backstreet Boys. So I'll give you one more example, right? Cats and dogs. If you're a cat person, raise your hand. Okay, there we go, a few of you, dog people. 
All right, so here you go again, right? See, dogs are great. I'm not anti-dog, but cats are better, right? The cats are just awesome. And I would just say this, like, I like dogs. The only thing is, like, a lot of dogs just aren't behaved. And so if I go to your house and your dog's jumping all over me, you might like the fact that your dog jumps over you, but I don't want them jumping all over me, so get your dog off of me, right? But if it was, like, subdued, then I would like it. Now, again, I just want to say that we all can get things wrong, right? Clearly, two examples, the majority was wrong. And so the point here that I want to say is that we can do this with God, okay? The Lord is greater than all things. We can misunderstand the better point. And clearly, that is what Jethro and Moses wanted to get us out of this text, is that cats and the Backstreet Boys are the best. But the point is, again, the Lord is greater than other things. And although we're in a different time and context than the Egyptians and the Israelites and the Malachites, we can still have the same temptations in our life. Not that it's bad to have things you enjoy and you pursue and you spend your time on, but if we give our identity and our allegiance, our ultimate allegiance to these things, then we'll be missing out on what God has for us. And so not only do we see that in this text, we're also meant to see this as we read the book of Exodus, and that is that the Lord is over all nations. So not, is he, not only is he greater than all the other gods, but he is over all of the nations. And again, as we read particularly the book of Exodus, we might miss this, right? We might assume that God really only cares about the Israelites and everyone else is kind of just getting in the way. Now, what is happening, right? God originally called Abraham. Why? Not because Abraham was awesome and not because the Israelites were any better than anybody else, but because he wanted to choose a people out of which he will bless the whole entire world. And so Exodus 18 is supposed to reemphasize the point that God's plan is for all nations. In other words, the glory of Yahweh through Israel and what they did in Egypt and what happens in the wilderness is supposed to be a sign for all nations that there is something different about this God and the invitation to come and see who he is. Right? If you remember, even when Moses was going back and forth with Pharaoh earlier on in Exodus, he told Pharaoh that part of what is happening here is not just for this moment, only. It's for the other nations and the future generations to look back and see the faithfulness and the strength of Yahweh, that God is over all nations, and he's also uh, more powerful than all other gods. And what is supposed to be happening here is supposed to be a light and an invitation for other nations to pause and consider who this God is. That's what's happening here, and that's what's happening with, uh, with Jethro doing these things, recognizing the strength of Yahweh and that God is over all things as he gives him these sacrifices. And so we'll continue in verse 13. Here's what it says next. It says, The next day Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge while all the other people stand around from morning until evening? So what's happening here is what was typical in most ancient cultures. The leaders, those in charge, would also judge. They'd be over civil and legal disputes. And so that's what's happening with Moses. Everything that's happening within the Israelite uh, nation as they're traveling through the wilderness, they go to bring before Moses to kind of help them figure out uh, what's going on when there are certain sites of dispute. And Jethro sees this. 
And very wisely says, this is too much for one person to do it. Now, again, Jethro is a leader as well. Of course, he hasn't experienced what Moses had uh, and wasn't leading as many people, but he was older and advanced in age and had experience of what, how do you kind of deal with a large amount of people? And so he offers Moses a better way. And so Moses explains to him why he does this. And so here's Jethro's response. If you scroll down or look down a few verses uh, to verse 17, we'll pick up after uh, Moses explains why he does this. Here's Jethro's response, verse 17. He says, what you're doing is not good. Moses' father-in-law said to him, you will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice and God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cares to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from all the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Now, again, remember the context of what is happening here, that Israel has left Egypt and for the very first time can actually legally uh, figure out solutions on their own. That They're not beholden to a regime that wants to oppress them, that they have problems and they can actually legally work them out. Uh, And so Moses wants to help, but clearly it's too much for just one person. Uh, And so this is why, again, the context of how we read Exodus, we see that next week we are going to begin to receive the laws and the commands of God because they're finally free, but they're confused on how they're actually supposed to live. Like as a free people, how do they actually treat one another? What does it look like to honor God and to love people well? And so this is leading us up to the commands that they're going to receive uh, and starting in chapter 20. And so here's what Moses does with great humility he takes on the advice of Jethro, right? Instead of doing everything on his by himself, he listens to Jethro, his father-in-law, and, and does what he asks him to do, that he's going to install other people to help bring uh, order and uh, commands and the laws to the people. Now, for us, again, I don't know what it's like for you, but I hate being told what to do. Right? And again, Moses has led these people through amazing things, through the wilderness. If anyone could say, no, I'm going to do it my own way, he could do that. But that's not what he does. In an amazing act of humility, he listens to somebody else and implements what he has said. And so again, like, unlike, I don't know if this is true for you, but I hate being told what to do. Right? For me, if someone tells me what to do, it's kind of like, unless I, unless I want someone's advice or I'm asking it, like it's better to kind of make it seem like it was my idea. And so Christina, she knows this, and I know that she knows this. It's not a secret. Like if she wants me to do something, if there's a way that she can kind of make it seem like it was my idea, rather than her asking me to do it, I'm probably going to do it with a lot better attitude. Now, I have passed this amazing gene onto my son, Roman, and he's a lot like me. Now, people say, how oh, isn't that funny? Like you get what you deserve. You know, I was a very strong-willed child. And and Roman is a strong-willed child. To me, though, I'm like, I actually think this is fun. Like, maybe when he's older, it won't be so much fun. But right now, I think it's great. And so what will happen is, for example, if you ask him to do something, and I've shared this before, and he doesn't want to do it, well, all you have to do is tell him not to do it. So if, there, if there's like, I want him to get me a tissue, let's say. I say, Roman, can you get me a tissue? He'll say no. And then I'll say this, Roman, don't get me a tissue. And he'll smile, right? Like, Roman, don't do it. He'll like back up. Like, you know, and then he'll get a tissue. If I want him to clean up and he's not in the mood, I'll say, Roman, don't clean up your toys. Don't put those cars away. And he'll do it. Even though I just told him to do it the time before, he says no. So I think this is great. And so we argue all the time. Now, Christina and Finley, our daughter, they're like roll their eyes at this point, but this is fun. So out of nowhere, I'll come up to Roman and I'll say, hey, Roman, no. And he'll say, yes. I'll say, no. 
Yes, and we'll go on for minutes, and it's great. And so a couple of weeks ago, a couple months ago, a month or two ago, we're driving in the car, and uh, we hear a siren. And uh, so Roman in the back seat says, fire truck. And I see pass by, and it was an ambulance. And so, I, of course, I have to correct him. I said, no, buddy, that was actually an ambulance. And he said, no, fire truck. And I said, ambulance, fire truck, ambulance. And so we're going back like for like two minutes. No exact two minutes. Christina and Finley, they're probably just like rolling their eyes, whatever. Fire truck, ambulance. I'm not going to stop. He's not going to stop. And eventually, he says fire truck again. I say ambulance. And then there's silence. I'm like, that was fun. That was a good two minutes. You know, that was good. And he finally realized he was wrong. Five seconds later, he goes, fire truck. He didn't want to let it go, right? He's just like, no, you ain't going to win. Now, what's happening here? See, what's happening here is that oftentimes we can do our own thing and go our own way and kind of assume that our relationship with God is just between us and God and no one else can have anything to do with it. But we see even through this and throughout the book of Exodus and really all of Scripture that following the Lord is not a solo pursuit. It's not something that you just do between you and God and no one else has a say about it. In fact, what we're going to see over these next couple of weeks as we begin to read and understand and look at these commands is that unfortunately, we, we, read, we read them wrongly. We understand them wrongly because what happens is we kind of open up our Bible, we read a chapter or a verse or a law or a command on its own without the context in which it was given, and we assume that it is saying something that it's not. So what can happen, for example, with the Ten Commandments is we can say things like, oh, we want to put them in the schools and we want to like let everyone know the Ten Commandments, which is fine, but we have to remember, first of all, that these laws are given to the people of God. There's not this expectation that people that don't know God would live by them, although we can say they're good morals. We shouldn't be telling people what they have to do when that's not how God presents it. He says, come and trust and experience me and then follow me. But we also see happening here is that we can read these commands and these laws and say, well, this is what I'm supposed to do before God and miss miss that what's happening here, that the Israelites are meant to live these commands out in community. It's never just about the individual person and God. It's about the community loving God collectively and loving others together. And these laws give them the foundations in order to do that. Now, of course, again, we're in a different time and context, and we'll look at that over the next couple of weeks as we look at the commands. So we, we're not ancient Israelites. We're no longer living on the Israelite law. But even in the New Testament, you have over 59 approximately uh, one another commands in the New Testament, talking about grieving with one another and praying for one another and holding each other accountable and celebrating with one another. And what you begin to see, even as you read the New Testament, is that you can't do this by yourself. This is not to say that you're not a Christian if you're not in community or that God doesn't love you or that you don't love God. It's not to say that at all. But what we see throughout Scripture is that you and I cannot follow God the way that he has commanded us to by ourselves. The problem is it's hard. It's hard to, it, it sounds great to say that I'm going to love someone and give someone grace and forgiveness until we actually have to do it. It's why it's important for us to commit to a community and stick with that community so that we can actually practice these commands and not just say they sound good, but do them even when they are hard. What we're meant to see here is that following the Lord as the Israelites are trying to do is never just about the individual person. It's about the community loving God and loving people together and God using the community to shape the people into the type of person that he wants them to be. And so we'll continue reading in chapter 19, verse 1. Here's what it says next. So Moses kind of, it's, it's assumed or understood that Moses is putting these people in place. And then it says this. In the third month, from the very day, the Israelites left the land of Egypt. They came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. 
Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nations. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. And so they arrive at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up and meets with the Lord. And the Lord says, I want you to go back down. The rest of Exodus 19 is Moses going back down and saying this to the Israelites. That I'm going to go back up this mountain. I'm going to meet with the Lord. He's going to give us, he's going to begin to give us the laws and the commandments of the covenant so that we can better understand what it looks like to honor God and to live in a community. And so that's what's going to happen in verse uh, chapter 20 that we'll see next week. He's going to go up. He's going to receive the Ten Commandments and the various laws and bring them back to the people so they, they can better see and understand who God is asking them to be. But again, it is important for us to understand as you go through the book of Exodus, uh, the timeline in which these things happen. What we see happening and is what has reminded us here in chapter 19 is that God is saying that I saved you and I redeemed you. And because I've done that, now I want you to understand what it looks like to follow me. Now that you know that I love you, that I care for you, and that I am your God, now I want you to see what it looks like to be a people after me. And so what we see happening throughout the Old Testament, or particularly in Exodus here, is that redemption precedes the law. It's not, that's not that they were in Israel and God, or in Egypt, and God gave them a few commandments, and if they did a really good job, then he was going to rescue them. Once they kind of proved their self to him, then he's going to say, okay, now I'm going to help you. That's not what happened. They were far from God. God responds. God redeems. God rescues. And after they have seen and understood and witnessed God's love and care for them, now that they know without a doubt that God cares for them and loves them, now they're going to see, okay, what does it look like for us to get to know this God better? Not out of obligation, but out of a response to his grace that he has first shown shown to us. And this is important for us to understand, right? Before we go and do things for God, we need to remember what God has done for us, right? And when you do this, this changes how you and I see God and how you and I uh, interact with God. Uh, even in our context, again, we are not the ancient Israelites, but our story, while different, is the same. If you're alive today, and if you're watching this or listening to this, you're alive today, right? What happened 2,000 years ago? Jesus came. Right? And what does it say in the New Testament? The why we were sinners, Christ died for us, that Christ took the first step for us. And so all of us in this room have to understand that God has moved towards you first before you could ever decide to move towards him. That's why in the New Testament it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Not that mere, merely we are bad, but we are dead and we need somebody outside of ourselves to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That redemption precedes the law. Redemption precedes going and doing. That God himself has come into time in the form of a man named Jesus to do what Israel fails to do and to do what you and I could not do. He saves us and he rescues us and he demonstrates his grace to us first. And as once we have tasted and seen and experienced his grace, we are then invited to follow him. We are then invited to honor him and to love people, not out of obligation, but out of a response of wanting to understand and know this God who gave himself for us even better. 
And so in our context today, you could really look at it this way. As you think about maybe the laws in the Old Testament, and they're kind of confusing, and we're going to go through them. But even if you think about today, like some of the things that Scripture asks us to do, uh, talks about being generous and forgiving your enemies and actually being graceful, uh, gracious to other people. There's a lot of things, not gossiping, not being prideful. These things are not easy. And what we do when we remember that God did for us, knowing that we would fail, it's not about us trying really hard, but instead of setting our eyes on the one who has loved us and living in a response. In other words, you could think of it like this, that God's love is revealed and Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf. His love is not revealed in you being a good person and those who measure up and check up enough boxes then you get to experience God's love and grace. God's love is revealed in what Jesus did for us. The good news of the gospel is that he gives these laws and these commands to a people with the desire for them to be set apart. And just like we do, the Israelites are going to fail time and time again. And what does God do? He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't say, too bad, I'm, I'm done with my creation. I'm done with these people. They don't know what they're doing. What does he say? He says, I love them, I care for them, and I'm going to do for them what they could never do for themselves. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf, that Jesus became the Israel that Israel could never be, that Jesus did what you and I could never do. It's why here at New City, when we talk about, if, you're, if you know Jesus and if you're a follower of Jesus, then we say things like this, because of Christ, you have nothing to prove, and you have no one to impress, right? You have nothing to prove because Jesus has proved it. He fulfilled it. He did all of it on our behalf. And you have no one to impress because if the God of the universe sees you the same way he sees Jesus as righteous and pure and holy uh, and deserving of his inheritance, not because of what you have done, because of what, because of what Christ has done, this changes our relationship with how we view God. God's love is revealed not when you do a good job and then he pats you on the back and he says, okay, now, now you can be my child. His love is revealed in him going first, taking the first step, and all we have to do is respond. And so I think this is a good reminder for us. I don't know what you walked in with today. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you just need to be reminded that you blew it this week or this month, right? It's only January and you've already like done nothing, none of the things that you thought you were going to do this year. That God still loves you and he cares. And if you're here and, and you're kind of, you're struggling and you're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, you need to know that you are here and that God is not asking you to act a certain way before he loves you. He's saying, I love you. And because I love you, I want to show you a better way. And so what we do is we do not act our way into God's graces. Uh, we do not behave our way uh, into God's love. That we, re we simply respond to the invitation that he has given us. That Christ came to do for what you and me could never do on our own. And when we experience him and we respond to the invitation of giving our life, not to lesser things that will always let us down and cannot satisfy us, but to the God himself who's laid down his life for us, that is when we experience life and grace and love, and it is in a response to the love that he first gave to us that we go with the desire to honor God and to love people. Why? So that as many people as possible can see the goodness and grace of God. We follow God because of what he first did for us. His love is revealed in Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf, and we follow him in a response of, out of what he has done for us. Let's pray.